It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own life. Beat it up and I've seen got no peace. The ladder puts a platter with a fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, the of the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of Doom and Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a fortress of fortitude in a phony world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right. And together we are the medical matrimony, the geezer and the goddess the masters of disaster. <laughs> and we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a lascivious lemur? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists, nor is implied between the host and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, yes, modern medicine is great, Nate. And keeps us healthy in normal times. How do you like my rhymes? <laughs> I do, I do. But are these normal times? Read the news about hurricanes and Antifa and all this stuff, and you just might realize that you could end up being the guy that keeps their family healthy in times of trouble. You might be the highest at medical asset left, so show the world you got more sense than a bucket of bullfrogs <laughs> and get some training, get some education, and while you're at it, how about some supplies and a quality quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge and what better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. It'll make your workplace, your school, your vehicle, your church safer, gosh, just about any place. And they're designed by a real life medical doctor and advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff and you'll agree, our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Hey, don't take our word for it. Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say 
about our medical kits and service. On top of that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. Just let us know you need the paperwork, and we'll do whatever it takes to make it work for you. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us. Mm -hmm. So cast a pearl of wisdom before us by connecting with the geezer and the goddess. It's very easy. So easy. And here's, you didn't sing it this I time. I didn't sing it this time. Here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, DR Bones, and Nurse Amy. Check out our other Facebook page, Doom and Bloom. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel, which has a brand new video out. I don't know if you're going to talk nope, about that. Nope, I haven't put it up yet on the website. i got to ah, do that today. Well, if you go to doomandbloom.net, go to the top of the page. It's got all of our connections, and one of them is a YouTube icon. Click on that. It'll take you directly to our YouTube channel. That's right. And, and you can view all the videos in a row if you'd like, but the latest one is about a neurological exam. That's right. It's and I'm important. the patient. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. We it's have... a little bit long, but it's interesting because you actually demonstrate exactly uh, how you would do a neurologic exam yeah. and how you would identify whether someone is normal or not in yep. terms of their did I pass? nerve function. And you passed. I did. With flying colors, <laughs> of course, as we expected. I'm not neurologically deficient. <laughs> I, I'm neurologically deficient, but just, just above the neck. That's, okay. That's <laughs> You're so funny. So, anyhow, so don't forget our YouTube channel. Yes. That's DR Bones Nurse Amy's podcast uh, channel. And our other podcast is called American Survival Radio, all about current events and broadcast from all sorts of different land-based radio stations in the U.S. of A. Mm-hmm. Don't forget our that this show is actually broadcast in the great state of Utah on KYAH Radio. Thank you so much, guys. We appreciate it. Well, yes. I just wanted to say that we have finished the text oh, of our my book. Oh, Now it's sent to formatting. Uh, our upcoming book is going to be called Alton's Antibiotics <clears throat> and Infectious Disease. And uh, it's a basically a guide to the wise use of antibiotics in austere settings. It's not your typical... I guess, medical textbook. It's all in plain English. It's not something they're going to use in schools. No. Colleges. No. (laughs) Or medical students. (laughs) No, probably not. Although, I will tell you this. If those medical students travel to other countries... They really could use it. They they may want to take something like this (laughs) for themselves. That's right. Well, what we do in in our new book is we teach you all about bacteria and viruses and protozoa and funguses, all all sorts of different uh, infections, and we talk about the kinds of infections that can be treated with antibiotics, mostly bacteria and some protozoa, and and, and we do talk about some fungi especially. Yes, and the reason we talk about these specific illnesses is that we found solutions to medical storage in times of trouble or austere settings that you can accumulate Without a prescription. Right. So, so, again, we're talking about veterinary medication. So, when we go through these illnesses, we tell you what sorts of available antibiotics that you can purchase now without a prescription for future use. That are identical oh, to human antibiotics. It, exactly. Exactly. And but the situation is that we don't want you to use these now. This is not a self-help book, just like our other books are not 
right now do this instead of going to the hospital. This is in situations, for instance, if somebody was on Mexico or Me- Mexican, is it Mexican? Mexico Beach. Or Mexico. Mexico Beach. Mexico, Mexico Beach. Beach in Florida right now in the middle of that devastation, there's not a lot of rescue folks that have gotten in there and somebody could be, you know, trapped in a house, unable to get out. Maybe there's a couple of people, you know, injuries might have happened. Obviously, if you look at the devastation, if there are people in some of the buildings that are still standing, but not standing well, you know, those folks need help now. They they maybe can't wait another 24 hours until the house-to-house search and rescue, which they're carrying out right now, actually gets to them. Exactly. Sometimes you need help immediately. That's so true. our strategy here is for devastation and obviously this long-term survival the situation that you're looking at right now with the beach eventually there are going to be search and rescue folks come through hopefully evacuate people who need immediate help but you know sometimes it's a little bigger and a little longer Katrina was a longer problem Uh, Andrew was a little bit longer so and especially if you're in a really remote area and with little access to the area you know not a lot of roads maybe the roads that do go there have a problem so you know there's just you just never know sure so we talk about not only do we talk about infectious diseases we talk about a lot of individual infectious diseases and how to identify them and we talk about the kinds of medicines that can let's talk about identifying them because it's best you can without laboratory studies right you're right you realize it's so easy to go to the doctor now and get lab tests, have cultures done, studies done that really helps the medical professional at least narrow down to a, a few, hopefully, problems you might have and find something that can help you. Without these laboratory studies, you're going to kind of be trying to weed through a lot of different illnesses. So we've tried to give you some information to help you narrow down what's going on and then give you suggestions for antibiotics that can treat that that illness. And we only point you in the direction of something you can store. Actually, you can obtain. We're not telling you all these IV situations, right, IV medications or or medications that you can't accumulate. And there's a lot of those, folks. Just look at a PDR. Right. When the it grand was in majority print. <laughs> are the, the grand majority are those. Yes. But we have found a few that are indeed available in an identical version that's used either for uh, aquarium fish mm-hmm. or for even for uh, pet birds. A couple and, of right, and, couple of and bird And they are not then. only similar, but they are exactly the same, identical to the medicines that are used in humans, so much so that they're just basically all manufactured together and just separated out one batch to another. Right. So basically what we're doing is we're, we put out a book here that, or that, that is going to be out at least that is way outside, we're, we're, we're having way the outside the conventional medical wisdom. We're having the formatting done right now. So we're really running down the street right now. We're almost at the stop sign. <laughs> Right. To put it up for sale, the only thing I have to do after she uh, formats it, we hired a, a very nice lady to help us. She also helped design the cover. Yes. Thank you, Tara. Yeah, it's a very cool-looking cover. Oh, my gosh. And we wanted something that would pop. But after she finishes putting the pictures in and formatting, 
we've got to get it back and make an index. That's right. That's always a lot folks, of Folks, an index is so helpful in the back of the book. But I'll tell, and we also have a glossary where we define. Yes, you made a glossary. We try to stay away from a lot of really technical talk, but whatever medical terms we do describe, we define them in the glossary exactly. as well. So we certainly, you can read at fifth grade level and understand this book. This is something that we feel is really important. It is way outside the conventional medical wisdom. I will accept. I must accept. Uh, that responsibility for putting out a book like that, but no one it else is very ever- nobody else has the guts to put it out. Well, yeah, and it's been a lot of work, folks. It's a it's been a night and day project, sleepless nights, tossing and turning, thinking about did we did we get everything? Did we make sure that we've covered as much as we can without making it a thousand pages? <laughs> you know, I'm try- we're trying to make it a reasonable size, and I think it's going to end up. What do you think, about 350 pages? I think so. Well, you know, the cool thing is that we have more than 100 illustrations. Yes, we do. In the book as well. So it's not just a bunch of print. Yes. We found a lot of really awesome charts and diagrams. That That's right. Ex- that explain Simple things that we're talking about. Yeah. Because uh, I think for me, when I've studied in school before, and even now we learn things every day, that there's something about an, an either an image or or a diagram or a chart that that just brings out sort of what you're reading. It's just a different way of your brain learning. And sometimes you'll remember a, a picture or, a, a, again, a diagram or a chart easier than you'll remember a few paragraphs. So I think those images that we chose really help pull the text together whenever we've put them in and Absolutely. Just give you a visualization of really what we're trying to say, um, and it just makes it a lot clearer. So I'm really, I'm really proud and happy of the images that we picked. I took yeah, some I think of those you did images. Some, yeah, you yourself took them. You are an awesome I'm, photographer, you know, right? So very cool. <laughs> I do my best. All of the antibiotics are my images. <laughs> Every one of them. So actually, that's and good. So they can ones. actually see the but these. These antibiotics actually exist, and yes. you can indeed. What do the labels get them. look like? Right. Uh, there are some other brands. I'm not. I'm not certainly telling people you have to buy this exact brand, but it shows you the name of the antibiotic and they and they on exist. the right. bottle of the medicine. Right. So you that they understand can search online. They can find and they can find it. Sure. So th- that's awesome. Well, of course, antibiotics. However, I want to talk a little bit about antibiotic resistance. You know, antibiotics oh, are good. not candy. They are only to be used when absolutely necessary. But having said that, you know, when modern medical care isn't available, the, you could actually prevent a lot of deaths by the availability of antibiotics. So if you have those available in your disaster medicine cabinet, well, you know what? Then you could indeed possibly save lives in a situation where there's a long-term lack of access to modern medical care. Indeed, for that reason, I, I believe that you should consider having a supply of these drugs in your storage if you believe that some disaster may occur that might take away your access to modern medical care. I mean, if you use antibiotics for every minor ailment that comes along, however, that's not good. That's not good from the standpoint of just resistance, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but just from a practical standpoint, you're going to run out of them very, very quickly, and that may contribute to an epidemic of antibiotic resistance caused by overuse. Resistant organisms develop ways to deactivate or otherwise circumvent 
the actions of an antibiotic. As a matter of fact, in the case of penicillin resistance, you probably read that, oh yeah, so many medicines are allergic, are resistant to penicillin these days. Well, what happens is, is that some bacteria began to produce a chemical that broke down a main part of the structure of the penicillin and uh, other drugs in that family uh, called a beta-lactam ring. They developed an enzyme, which is sort of something that ate into that, which is called beta-lactamase. And what that did, by destroying that part of the chemical structure of penicillin, it rendered the antibiotic essentially ineffective. Antibiotics are essential tools for success and long-term survival. And unfortunately, the government and the livestock industry and some physicians have sponsored and have fostered widespread resistance to many of the standard drugs. Even patients themselves put pressure on their health providers for prescriptions of antibiotics. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report that a significant percentage of patients leave their doctor's office with an antibiotic prescription that is of absolutely no use to treat their probably viral infection or sometimes no infection at all. And the important thing here is that a lot of people feel that they're not getting any benefit from their doctor if they don't get these kinds of prescriptions. So it is sort of crazy and it has certainly made antibiotic overuse an epidemic in this country. There are more than 2 million diagnosed cases of antibiotic resistance in the United States. I think about 23,000 deaths in 2013. There were 23,000 deaths due to antibiotic resistance and the cost, the cost of caring for these patients, more than $30 billion. As of 2015, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, has compiled a list of close to 20 bacteria that have shown a tendency towards antibiotic resistance, resistance and they include various organisms that cause things from diarrhea to respiratory issues, wound infections, and even sexually transmitted diseases. So there are all sorts of crazy resistant antibiotic-resistant antibiotic bugs that are out there that have shown their faces just in the last few years, and that is pretty bad. I mean, essentially, it's a rogue gallery of terrible infections that cause everything from yeast infections to food poisoning to all sorts of crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. And I think it's beyond our comprehension to understand that things that small can be learning without a brain, understanding what is attacking them, and changing, right. mutating, evolving, right. and mutating so that the next time they're exposed to that antibiotic, that antibiotic won't do anything. And that's pretty incredible. It is pretty the incredible. The learning. It's, it's like they go to college and they say, okay, well, when you see this, you may want to change. And they've also shown that there may be some sort of communication, not in a way we communicate in, in any way, shape, or form, but some communication to other bacteria in the same vicinity that, hey, this is what you need to do. So they all change as a unit. Yes. and It's like groupthink. They all decide, or one, one figures it out and somehow communicates it. I don't think they understand how that happens, but they do. And now many bacteria that have been exposed right. learn how to do it. It's, and they, they are They teach resistant. a class on right. it after they learn. That, that bacteria becomes the teacher. It's just wild what happens at such a tiny, tiny 
microscopic level. And the, phase, uh, the funny thing is that the medicines that we're using, the antibiotics that are being used these days, mm-hmm. are successful, even if they're resistant, successful in killing a lot of the bugs, right. but it's that 1% of bacteria figure that it out. are strong enough, you or know, something, that's what they say, if you don't, if it doesn't, what doesn't kill you, kill makes you, you stronger, makes right? you stronger. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Same thing goes with bacteria. Yeah, somehow some of them either mutate as it's happening, or maybe when they were formed, something was just a slightly different with them, and they're the ones that survive. Right, they exactly. They start passing and, that on. And multiplying, and absolutely... It causes some major issues. Everybody knows about MRSA and a lot of these other types of resistant bacteria. It is pretty scary. I it mean, is scary. That's right. Now, the action of some patients, as I mentioned, contribute to the resistance epidemic. Uh, you know, a lot of people feel better after taking the first two or three days of, a, of an antibiotic. And even though they're supposed to take it for about 10 days, let's say, in in a particular case, well, they stop. They think that all's well. Well, most of the bacteria are dead, but some colonies may persist as you prematurely end the treatment. So remember that it's very important. You know, now I understand that if you were the medic in a long-term scenario, you might be tempted to use an antibiotic just for a very short period of time to conserve your last few pills. Well, in a true long-term disaster where there's no chance of obtaining a replacement medicine, well, it may leave you with some tough decisions. You might have to make a decision to use it for less than a full course of therapy. And that is a bad thing in the long run. might save somebody in the short run, but in the long run, you'll run out of medicines. And that is pretty bad. Those people that are going to be entrusted with the health of family members after a disaster, they have to be the medical quartermaster. They have to wisely dispense medications that will save lives, but they have to also conserve a scarce supply that would be all you have if really some major terrible calamity occurs. You have to walk a fine line between what we call an observant manager, Mm -hmm. that is somebody who's doing nothing, just observing, and an aggressive manager, and somebody is doing everything. Right. So you exactly. have to walk that. You have to find that balance. Uh, the, and I want to just say that using antibiotics liberally is a poor strategy for a lot of reasons. Overuse can foster the spread of resistance bacteria. As we mentioned in 2011, there was a huge salmonella outbreak. Millions of pounds of turkey meat that was laden with these antibiotics uh, that caused resistance in a bacteria, they had to be discarded after 100 people were sent to the hospital with a severe diarrheal disease with salmonella. The salmonella, which had gotten used to the antibiotic, essentially became resistant and caused people to get sick. The the food industry, by the way, is responsible for almost 80% of the antibiotic use in the United States, and that's not because they're treating a sick or infected livestock. Uh, or chicken or, or cattle or something like that. No, it's just to make healthy livestock grow faster and get it to market sooner. Nobody knows why that happens. But if you give antibiotics throughout the life of a uh, chicken Hef- or, heifer. A he- or a heifer or, <laughs> or other, other livestock, food-producing livestock, mm-hmm. they seem to grow faster, they seem to get bigger, and they, you can get them to market 
sooner. And just don't do that to your kids. <laughs> You're not <laughs> yes. trying to grow your kids faster right. and we bigger. Don't, <laughs> don't want to fatten them up. So, but the truth is, it doesn't have to be the case that that you have to give antibiotics routinely to livestock. You know, if they're not sick, some European countries like Denmark forbid the routine use of antibiotics in livestock, and it doesn't seem to have any apparent ill result on public health. I mean, you should always consider supporting farmers who raise antibiotic-free critters. This will decrease the further development of resistant bacteria, and the antibiotics that you have in your medical storage will therefore be more effective. Now, of course, there are also other reasons why you don't want to use antibiotics too liberally. There are potential allergic reactions that may occur. In the worst cases, they could lead to anaphylactic shock, something we've talked about on this show many times. Uh, frequent exposure to antibiotic increases the likelihood of developing an allergy to one or more of them. Now, many infections, including most respiratory infections, are viral. So antibiotics are completely ineffective in treating them. A common cold, for example, is a viral illness. You give somebody antibiotics for them, they would be no more effective than chewing gum uh, in, <laughs> getting rid of the, in getting rid of the infection. Uh, and also, one thing that people don't realize is that if you're trigger happy with antibiotics, it may make a diagnosing an illness more difficult. If you give antibiotics before you're sure what medical problem you're actually dealing with, you actually mask the condition. In other words, symptoms that would have helped you figure out what disease your patient actually has could temporarily disappear as a partial reaction to the antibiotic. And this could cost you valuable time in actually determining what they really have and what the real correct treatment is. So rehydration, rest, symptomatic relief, ibuprofen to get rid of fever, for example, might be an appropriate first course of action for most infections. Of course, ibuprofen, you can buy that by the barrel full if you want. And so you can get as much of that as you need to treat some of the symptoms. A lot of the other over-the-counter drugs would help you with that too. And the body, by the way, may, many people, or I might say most people, are strong enough immunologically to eliminate the bacteria and its toxins without antibiotics. So consider the use of antibiotics only for serious disease. And that's why we wrote the book for, for the long-term survival medic to be able to handle serious disease that otherwise would take away the lives of their loved ones. So this is something that's important. And this is logical stuff too. You know, antibiotics have side effects and that's something important that uh, drugs that, even drugs that are meant for an, a diarrheal disease may actually have the side effect of causing diarrhea. So this is something that shows that there are always risks. There are benefits and risks to every treatment. And unless by, and you own a pharmaceutical company, you will only have a limited supply of medicine and a disaster. Replacing those drugs are going to be difficult, maybe impossible. So you only want to use them when they're absolutely necessary. It's all logical stuff. It should be noted, by the way, that the director of the CDC wants us, or wants the government, to have an increased stewardship of veterinary antibiotics due to the epidemic of antibiotic resistance. And so you've got to do what you can to get antibiotics now, have them as part of your medical woodshed. You need to use all the tools in the medical woodshed. We say that, say that all the time. And you want to have some antibiotics there. And the truth of the matter is, is that I think that access to, access to these antibiotics that we talk about in our book might be curtailed in the future. So you should learn about them now and you should get perhaps a supply of them. 
Uh, in January 2018, as a matter of fact, the government chose to eliminate availability of a number of veterinary antibiotics to the general public, and they called that the Veterinary Feed Directive, and it eliminated access to a wide range of antibiotics unless they're prescribed by a veterinarian. Now, fortunately, the antibiotic options that we talk about in our book are may, aren't made for food-producing livestock, and that's what the Veterinary Feed Directive actually targets is food-producing livestock, Veterinary Feed Directive. Um, so none of these medicines that we talk about are used in any large-scale operation meant to bring food to the table. Uh, not unless somebody has got a hankering for a bunch of guppies. Yes, that's right. <laughs> tasty. tasty. I don't think guppies would be so tasty. Fry, fry them up. That's right. Well, but this doesn't mean that aquarium and, or avian antibiotics might not one day be removed from the market, at least without a veterinarian's prescription. Now, whether this is something that's likely to happen, that's uncertain. How many people bring sick guppies or goldfish to veterinarians, right? Probably yes. not a lot. Despite this, the wise individuals concerned about the loss of modern medical care in a disaster might consider obtaining a supply for their austere medicine cabinet sooner rather than later. You have to make sure to use antibiotics judiciously, and we hope to teach you that in our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, a guide to the wise use of drugs in austere settings. So supervise your people, make sure that they're using antibiotics only when absolutely necessary. You, got, you have to supervise them closely to utilize the benefits of medicines without increasing risks. And in austere settings where modern care is just not available, it's gonna be tempting to use up whatever supply of antibiotics exists right away. Discourage your family members from taking these drugs without first consulting the medic for the family yes. or the group. And of course, in normal times, seek the advice of a qualified medical professional. Remember, it is illegal to practice medicine without a license Illegal and punishable by law. <laughs> you know what? Right. You should have that pre-recorded. I should. And you should just be able to push a button. <laughs> this is a public service announcement. This is Dr. Joe Alton telling you once again, do not practice medicine without a license. Signing <laughs> off. <laughs> it's uh, words to live by. Yes. <laughs> well, hey, you know what? Even in bad times, people, and I, when I say people, I mean, in this case, women, women. get pregnant. Yes, oh, usually no. women are the ones that are getting pregnant. And Don't that can do that. That can <laughs> happen kidding. in normal times. Babies are awesome. Uh, babies are awesome. Love awesome That's babies. <laughs> women get pregnant in normal times. Women get pregnant in times of trouble, too. Maybe more often, as a matter of fact, if some long-term event have eliminated the availability of, what, birth control pills, other products that prevent pregnancies, well, you may have people pregnant all the time in your group. Goodness and gracious. Boy, oh boy, that is sort of an issue because there's not going to be much in the line of baby formula produced, so you're going to be feeding babies the old-fashioned mm -hmm. way, and that is yes. with breast milk. Breastfeeding. That's the good stuff anyway. It is the good stuff. That's However, right. if you can't breastfeed, don't feel guilty. It's okay. They make really good formula now. That's right. Well, try in to times of trouble, you say, don't have a choice. Try to breastfeed. That's true. There you go. Breastfeeding is also called lactation, by the way. And breastfeeding doesn't always go smoothly. I mean, the National <laughs> Breastfeeding <laughs> Awareness Campaign. You have no idea. <laughs> there is something called the National Breastfeeding Awareness Campaign. It's there to... 
well, promote breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And it wants women to exclusively breastfeed for the first six months of the infant's life. But the majority of women in the U.S. stop breastfeeding earlier than that because of usually discomfort. And that occurs sometimes due to yeast or other infections or even non-infectious conditions of, let's say, the nipple area. How about, how about a baby's teeth? Yes. <laughs> that, well, that can always hinder breastfeeding. Well, when do the teeth, so well. when do the teeth come yeah, in? Yeah, I know. Later <laughs> than that, but still. <laughs> well, Some people want to breastfeed for the first couple years. What can I say? Well, I'll tell you, some people do get really inflamed breasts as a result of breastfeeding, and mm -hmm. that inflammation is called oftentimes mastitis. Did that happen to you, honey? It didn't happen to me, <laughs> but I have seen it happen many, many times. Yes, you have. That's right. And, and if you're off the grid because of some major disaster, figuring out the cause of an infection might not be easy, but we indeed know that there are signs and symptoms that suggest what treatment is there that you might consider using. Mm -hmm. and, and what we call that treatment when you're just going by physical signs and symptoms, we call that empirical therapy. There's definitive therapy and there's empirical therapy. The most common causes of breast pain during lactation are plugged ducts, uh, mastitis, uh, uh, inflammation of the breast, and even little abscesses, boil, like it's like a boil but, uh, in the breast tissue. Now, plugged ducts are essentially just localized blockages of milk. They're not usually associated with signs of a serious infection like, like fever maybe but they can be very tender and very bothersome. You can get mastitis, that's usually localized to one side only, but you can get it on both sides, and it appears usually sort of with redness, tenderness, and a hot swollen area of the breast. So common that uh, you can expect anywhere from 2.5 to 24% of women to have it after having it. a baby. I believe it. Now, well, both you and the baby have to figure out how to breastfeed. It's not always the easiest thing to do. That's true, even, yes. Even from someone who was highly educated in how to teach someone to breastfeed, it was not easy. Myself. So you, you can't talk to the baby. You can talk to the baby, but the baby, <laughs> baby isn't understanding much at that point except feed me. I'm crying. Feed me. Right. Well, hopefully the baby doesn't Something's answer wrong. it. Feed me. Yes. Don't answer it any other way. The baby. The baby <laughs> has only one form of communication at that point, and it's crying. That's crying right. or not crying. Those are your two indicators of whether you're doing something right or wrong. I mentioned definitive therapy and empirical therapy. I want to talk about that for just a second. Every medical provider wants to be sure they're using the exact medicine that's needed to eliminate an infection. If you have a reasonable certainty that a specific medicine is going to cure the illness. Let's say if you have a lab test result that comes back that you have X bacteria and that it will be killed by this list of antibiotics, well, then you can provide what's called definitive therapy. In other words, you know that you've got this problem and that this problem is caused by this bacteria and that this antibiotic will kill that bacteria. Mm -hmm. That's definitive therapy. Now, of course, in austere settings, in a disaster setting, without lab studies and stuff like that, you have to base your diagnosis purely on a patient's physical signs and symptoms. You might be surprised to know that this is actually a pretty common way that physicians actually start treatment, even with access to the most modern labs. They see somebody that looks like they're sick and they think they might get worse pretty quickly, then they'll give you an antibiotic they think, let's say, that might treat what they what it looks like you have right now when a caregiver a good guess yes exactly 
So when a caregiver suspects an infection, waiting for results to come back before starting treatment might not be in the patient's best interest. So once you've made your educated guess, you choose an antibiotic likely to be successful in treating that particular illness. And that's called empirical therapy because it's based on your experience in the absence of complete or perfect data. Now, a good analogy for this applies to hurricanes. As a matter of fact, we just had some bad hurricanes recently, Florence and Michael. Uh, and in all of these, if you looked at them as they were heading towards their target, there was a cone of uncertainty, what they call a cone of uncertainty. And that showed several possible tracks that for a tropical cyclone right. that might, for where it might possibly hit. Yep. So meteorologists use their experience and knowledge of weather patterns to plot out this cone, but they aren't certain where landfall will occur. They are empirically making guesses as to where the storm will hit, and most of the time they're indeed correct. Right, like with Hurricane Michael that happened. They said it was going to hit Panama ago. City. Right, and it hit five miles south of it, or east of I'd it. I'd say or east, yeah, east, east of it, of it is yeah. the direction. So crazy. We often mention diseases that are caused by a specific organism in our upcoming book. And the thing is, you'll rarely have the good luck off the grid to know that an infection is caused by a specific bacterium or that a certain antibiotic is guaranteed as a cure. But by learning about different infections and antibiotics, you'll have the best chance to choose the correct empirical therapy. And what we're trying to do with our book is to help teach you how to reach those kinds of decisions. Now, a lot of women who have breastfed can tell you that Nipples get red and cracked and sore, and often, oftentimes they could get infected. They could be infected with yeast mm -hmm. is very, very common. The yep. yeast most uh, responsible is known as Candida albicans. It's the same kind of yeast that causes vaginal infections. Yep. And uh, let's talk a little bit about physical signs and symptoms. There are a lot of different ones, but the most common one, of course, is sore nipples. That's the most common breastfeeding problem. The first few days after birth occurs maybe in just about everybody, but this is usually trench. Yeah, there's a time that your your nipples are kind of getting used to being sort of abused. Yes. Every couple of hours. <laughs> they got to toughen up. I'm serious. They, they have, have to toughen, to toughen up. up. They exactly. have to toughen up a little bit. It's so, true. Right. So you're saying it's usually a transient thing. It goes away with... Uh, a little bit of experience yeah, time, and time. proper positioning of the proper baby to the nipple. breastfeeding, exactly. Things like that. However, there are people who do get persistent pain without improvement, and in that circumstance, you may need to evaluate it. So if you have sore, burning, itchy, tender nipples, these can be symptoms of several types of conditions, and early diagnosis of these conditions help women from receiving, number one, from getting worse, mm -hmm. and number two, from receiving maybe incorrect treatment while they're nursing. So what else besides yeast will cause nipple issues in breastfeeding moms? There are a number, a number of them, actually, and one is eczema of the nipple area. You can get eczema of the areola and the nipple, and it presents in different ways. You might have an acute onset of little blisters and then a crusting area, and then a, sometimes it appears like a dry, scaly rash. Usually, when you have this due to eczema, it's usually found on the areola and not on the actual nipple or the base of the nipple. Usually, it uh, doesn't affect the nipple itself, but it affects the areola. So, look for a prior history of eczema uh, in people. Those people may wind up having some eczema. That's one way. Also, you can get an allergic or contact 
uh, rash from exposure to the infant, to the mouth of the infant, not because of the infant itself, but because of maybe ingredients of solid foods as you start adding solid food to the baby, mm-hmm. baby as well as breastfeeding. So that's another uh, another condition is something called Raynaud's syndrome of the nipples. And, and basically what that is is that the blood vessels actually go into spasm and tighten up and in the nipple area. And what that does, it leads to a severe throbbing, burning pain. You can tell this is caused by Raynaud's syndrome simply because it the nipples blanch. They, they're losing some of the circulation there, and so it turns sort of whitish, and then it turns kind of bluish, sort of reddish, purplish kind of color, and it seems to get worse after exposure to cold temperatures. That call, that's called Raynaud's phenomenon. Now, of course, it's probably not a good idea to be out in clothes that expose your nipples in cold weather, I would say. No. So, <laughs> so it, I wouldn't, it'd be hard to test for that, I think, yes. pretty much. But if you find that the nipples are blanching, becoming sort of whitish, and or, or the blood vessels seem to be constricting in that area, it could be related to uh, Raynaud's syndrome. And that is not infectious at all. Now, of course... Infections, when we talk about infections, we're talking about bacterial infections or yeast infections. Bacterial infections of the nipple look red, inflamed, cracked, and you might see people have fever with this condition. The area becomes red and warm, and you might notice some drainage of either pus or yellowish discharge, or discharge that might have some kind of odor. Mastitis is an inflammation of the breast tissue, and that most commonly occurs after the first maybe 10 days after birth and could be seen anytime during the breastfeeding period. So the, the current definition for making the diagnosis of mastitis of the breast includes the presence of fever and flu-like syndromes. So, so, and of course, there are also skin issues. Mastitis can be non-infectious or could involve a bacterial organism. If you can't remove milk adequately from, from the breast, well, of course, can breed conditions that favor bacterial growth. And the most common cause of bacterial mastitis is staph, staph aureus, even MRSA. And it occurs in about 40% of cases. And it, there's evidence that the organism enters the breast tissue through a cracked, damaged nipple. About 3 to 11% of mastitis infections are complicated by the formation of a boil or an abscess. Breast abscesses are usually the result of an adequate, inadequate, or maybe delayed antibiotic treatment, but you may have to use antibiotics. Things like Keflex, Cephalexin are commonly used for this type of issue. Now, of course, you might actually be dealing with a yeast infection, a candida infection of the breast. That would be more itchy than anything else, but you may still have burning pain of the nipple or areola area, uh, Stabbing pain in the breast, some people do notice that, but mostly it's more on the skin and more soreness on the skin itself. Now, these are things that we'll see you if you have antibiotic therapy during labor or late pregnancy, you might see more of a tendency to have a yeast infection of the nipple. If you have a vaginal yeast infection at the time of delivery, that may occur, and of course. Uh, a lot of people say that the use of bottles and pacifiers increase your chance of having a yeast infection. Now, a medical history to rule out risk factors for this Raynaud's phenomenon, for eczema of the nipple, these are probably a good start. So look at the nipple itself for signs that it might be 
turning white, blanching, mm -hmm. or bluish. That might tell you you've got Raynaud's phenomena. People who have eczema, like I said, remember that the rash is mostly around the areola and not the nipple itself. Um, and if it's not really hot and it doesn't look like it's very deep, I would maybe point more towards a yeast infection causing that a candida infection. And the most common treatment for a localized candida of the nipple is an antifungal topical medication uh, such as nystatin, and that's also known as mycostatin. Uh, the problem with nystatin is it's been used so much that more than 40% of yeast infections of the breast are resistant to the drug. So now it's recommended that you use things like monostatin-derm, uh, myconazole, right. or lotrimin, clotrimazole, in, in cream form, and these can be used to treat the mother. Now, the treatment plan, however, involves also maybe a topical antibiotic ointment because if you have cracks in the nipples, what happens is, due to a yeast infection, what happens is, is that bacteria that's normally on now, the skin, like Staph aureus, right? Exactly. Now you've got two problems. Exactly. And so that's, One li might lead to the other also. Right. An opposite... If you end up with a bacterial infection and you end up taking antibiotics, now you've thrown off your balance in your body. You may overgrow yeast and end up with a yeast infection on your nipples where you had started with the bacterial. So it's so a vicious go, cycle. It's a very vicious. It's a hard one to get off of, I'll tell you. So you may, right. You and may, a lot of times you have to treat the baby and the mom. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was <clears> just about to say that. So you, you may have to treat with both antifungal and antibiotic ointments or creams. And indeed, Ugh. you have to consider treating the baby as, as well. That's something that's important. Now, some people also, by the way, with regard, since I'm talking about creams, consider the use of hydrocortisone cream just to decrease inflammation and help the healing process. Now, and the problem is you're still breastfeeding every, I mean, hopefully at that point, three to four hours, hope maybe a little bit longer. So you keep having more... I don't want to say injury, but more trauma to that area because when the baby's on there, it's a very moist area. Right. Somebody's chomping on you, and if you've got pain in your breast, it does not feel great when that baby is breastfeeding. And the baby may also have <laughs> yeast, yeast itself. It might have a oral yeast infection known as thrush. thrush. That's yes. a very common, commonly seen, and there is actually a suspension of nystatin or... Um, Oral fluconazole. There's also diflucan um, that you can called? use for Gen that. Genum. Gen oh, gentian violet. Gentian violet. Yeah, which is sort that's of that's really fun. But that's old timey. You yeah, you painted your nipple with, with this purple dye. Right. It, like it reminds me a little of, of something we used many, many, many years ago when I was a kid called mercurochrome. Well, the thing about that is, it wasn't it wasn't a problem to breastfeed with this. That could help treat the thrush in the baby's mouth without harming the baby. Right. But it is messy. It is very messy. Messy, yes. So those are some of the things that you can definitely do. Now, um, fluconazole is actually one of the medicines that's available in a fish Which form. they didn't fish have flucon. when my kids were young. Right, there you go. It's fish flucon. Excellent invention. There you go. Everyone should have fluconazole. That's right. In and their that, home, just that, in case. The human version of that is called diflucan. His brand name is called diflucan. Uh, the generic name is called fluconazole. And uh, the fish uh, antibiotic version uh, is called fish flucon, or yep. actually fish antifungal, I guess is better 
better said. Uh, so you can treat it if it's a severe or very stubborn infection, you just can't get rid of it with <clears throat> oral fluconazole for the mom. And the problem is it's not really yet approved by the Food and Drug Administration for this purpose, but when they do use it, they give about 200 to 400 milligrams loading dose. Uh, the fish flucon comes in 100 milligram doses. To the mom. Right. About to so the you mom. Give, give a what we call a loading dose, which is usually a double dose or a, or, or a triple dose. Right. Just like anyone who's taken a Z-pack right. with azithromycin will notice that on the first day you're taking two of those tablets. And then for the other days, two through five, you only have to take one. So it's the idea of getting a goodly amount of the medicine circulating in the blood and starting to work, and then you can reduce the dose on the, for the following days. Exactly, and indeed, the same thing here. You're using 200 to 400 milligrams loading dose of, <clears throat> of fluconazole, and then 100 to 200 milligrams once a day, and you do that for 14 to 21 days. So those are the doses that have been used to treat candida, uh, yeast infections with candida uh, in the past, or candida in the past, and they use that as an oral treatment for people who have yeast infections in a lot of different organs. That's right. A lot of people that are immune compromised or infirm yep. may have a fungal infection on an internal organ, and they give that oral medicine for it. And that's the same dosage that they're saying to give for yeast mastitis or yeast fun yeast infections of the nipple area. Right. Now, they're not absolutely sure that that has had all its tests necessary to make sure that's the appropriate dosage or the appropriate medicine for it, but it is something that I can tell you is being used today. And they suggest, by the way, while you're taking fluconazole that you can should continue breastfeeding if you can. But, of course, that depends on the severity of the discomfort the pain, that yes, you're dealing with. The pain. Sometimes it might not be possible. Sometimes you have to actually weigh the benefits and the risks of breastfeeding but versus weaning. At, but let me just mention something. If you abruptly stop breastfeeding... It's I worse. Don't, I don't care how tight the ACE bandage is around your chest to try and put some pressure on there. You're going to swell up like... A whale <laughs> and it's gonna hurt way more than just continuing to breastfeed so I highly suggest not abruptly stopping breastfeeding ever wean the child if you have to stop breastfeeding Slowly a, but a little surely. bottle here a little bottle there then maybe a couple more bottles extra and just do it very slowly so your body adapts to producing less milk over a longer period of time if you cut off breastfeeding, you think you had a problem with this yeast or bacterial, you just compounded your problem about a thousandfold. Now, I want to say one thing, that in a true long-term survival situation, it's not like you can just take a baby off of breast, regardless of your situation, that your baby is going to be able to I just, be off breast milk if it's too right. early. Unless, unless somebody was able to store powdered breast milk in some form that increases its um, storage expiration. Because I don't know what the expiration date is for powder. I really don't know. But I know there is one. And whether you can make it last longer in some fashion, I'm not sure. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Because that's a scary 
thought. We'll have to we'll have to look that up. I you know another thing that may occur is that we may see an old profession come back. Oh yes, that of nursemaid, the wet nurse. Yes, the wet nurse. The right. wet nurse. Right. There may be people that are just continually keep their breast milk going. They do that for the survival of the community, not right. because they're interested in being a a milk cow, a milking cow, but because <laughs> yes. their their goal. Just like a doctor or a medic or a nurse is to help the community. And for the greater good of the community, if something happens to a mom, let's say it is a terrible, you know, destruction of of a large area, there's not hospitals. Let's say, you know, unfortunately something happens to the mom right after delivery. Right after the delivery, she gets an infection from the delivery. Sure. Something didn't go right. Maybe she loses a lot of blood. Now you've got an infant. If somebody is not producing milk at that moment, you can't begin to produce milk over the a period of time, which usually takes two or three weeks, if someone's stimulating the baby Yoder's bacon. That yeah. (laughs) That baby immediately needs a feed immediately needs breast milk. So the wet nurse would serve such an amazing service to the community to keep babies alive, to re- be able to, you know, have healthy children. I'll bet you guys haven't thought about that out there. Yes. Who's, <laughs> you're going to have to designate the wet Who's nurse. Who's going to be the wet nurse? Yes. Oh, my god. Someone's going to have to have a baby first. That's, that's true. That's the way. You that's just the way that going. works. Yep. That is just amazing. Well, I'll tell you. I hope you thought about some things that are a little out of the box today with our show. We talked about using using antibiotics that are meant for non-humans. We talked about wet nurses. And, and antibiotic resistance. And antibiotic resistance, all sorts of stuff. Uh, things that you subject, might not have Starling. thought about every day. So we're out of time. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. We'll be back next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.